Good morning. Welcome to Rivermont. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be studying verses 24 to 38 today as we pick up our study of the Gospel of Luke. Last week we saw in the passage just before this that the Lord invited His apostles and He invites us into a fellowship meal with Him. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb slain for us. And we celebrate that in communion. Communion is a sign to point us to and remind us of what Jesus has done for us. And it's also a seal. It's a verification in the hands of the Spirit of God to promise that His work is effective. The Holy Spirit uses the Lord's Supper like a a giant signet ring to seal our wax hearts with the impression that we are loved and cherished and valued by the King of Heaven. As Jesus reminded His apostles of this, they began to argue. Like we do so often, they argued who's the worst and they argued who's the best. Let's turn our attention to Luke 22, beginning in verse 24, to see how Jesus responded. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Let's pray together. Father, We ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes and see the wonderful things you have for us in your word. And may we not only see with our eyes, but would you transform our hearts as we are before you today. In Jesus' strong name, we ask it. Amen. It's not hard to imagine a conversation like this one, is it? It's not hard to imagine it because these kinds of conversations go on in our homes and in our hearts All the time. Who's the greatest? When Jesus called these disciples to himself and they celebrated communion that night, he said one of the apostles would betray him. And they, in verse 23, began to try to figure out which one of them would do it. 
Can you imagine how the conversation went? I would never do that. That was that's a terrible thing. I'd never do something like that. And then you hear another one say, well, neither would I. I can't be the one. I wouldn't betray Jesus that way. As they turned from arguing who is the worst, who's the betrayer, their focus turned to who's the best, who's the greatest. You can hear how this conversation would go. I would never betray Jesus. In fact, I was with him when we cast all those demons out. Were you? You hear another one. Well, I was holding the biggest basket of leftovers when we fed the 5,000. Were you the one holding the basket? And the other one would say, well, I was holding the biggest basket when we fed the 4,000. So there. And yet another. I stayed with him all night and prayed with him one night. How about you? On and on and on it would go in verse 24 to determine. It's the exact same language as verse 23. Which of them would betray him? In verse 24, which of them was the greatest? It's not hard to imagine that conversation. I don't want to pick on the Boy Scouts too much this morning. But I remember as a kid, as a scout, you remember the sash that Boy Scouts wear? I couldn't even think of the word. You know, I didn't, I didn't, sash sounded wrong for Boy Scouts for some reason, but... That's what it is. It's a sash and, and they sew the merit badges, the little small circles on, on, the, on the sash that they wear. And you could immediately tell which are the really good scouts. You could tell who were the greatest scouts by seeing all the merit badges that they had on their sash. Well, here these apostles broke out their apostle scout sash <laughs> to argue who's the best. Who's the greatest? Who's done the most spectacular things for God? Who's the greatest? They followed this conversation from let's play find the bad guy to identify who's the best in one big leap. In fact, it's really not a big leap at all. We could even call it a a short hop. And you and I do it so often. How so? Well, if I want to distract you from how bad I am, if I want to distract you from the things that you know, the character flaws that you see in my heart, in my life, how am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to tell you how great I am, right? I may not use my words to do it, but I might do it with my life. I want you to, to think well of me and, and think that I can do all this great stuff, so I'm going to put my best foot forward. We wear our sash with our spiritual merit badges on it all the time. It's like our collection that we gather together to point them to point you to how great a Christian we are. We all do it. We keep sewing things onto our great sash, hoping that you think, well, we are okay. Kids do it. Kids do it with who's got good grades, who excels in sports, who participates in the best clubs. And if you have all three, well, you are a fantastic student, right? As adults, we do the same thing. We sew badges on our sash for the good business deals we've closed. We sew another badge on for successful parenting. Even if it just comes in snippets and in little bitty chunks. We'll take what we can get. I'm a a great parent. How about the career that I've managed to eke out for myself? The ladder that I've climbed. Sew badges on for the toys that I can afford. The ways that I've, I've successfully planned for my retirement. And if I have all of these things lined up in my life, then you're going to think I'm great. We wear these things around and expect that the more we do and the more we're recognized for, then the greater we are. But Jesus' designs are quite different. 
He provides the apostles and for you and for me a different definition of what greatness is in this passage. And they didn't get it at the time. Even after this lesson that he told them in verses 35 and 38, they said they wanted to fight. Times were about to get difficult, Jesus said. You're not going to have enough to, to make it through. Things are going to be challenging. There's going to be conflict. That's the idea behind the sword, is Jesus uses that parable, that metaphor, again and again in the Gospel of Luke to tell them conflict is coming. And they misunderstood him. They said, we have two swords. We have more than enough. We're more than ready to be great warriors for your name. In verse 38, if you could hear the voice inflection... Jesus said, enough of that. It's enough. Settle down, guys. You don't get it because they didn't. They believed that their great deeds, the things they did for God, measured their greatness before the Lord. Or they measured their great power to fight against the hostile people as their greatness. Jesus says, it's none of that. Where? Where does greatness in the kingdom of God come from? What might Jesus sow onto our sash as his disciples, as his children? Where does it truly come? Well, the first we see in this passage is that greatness in the kingdom comes from service. Self-sacrificial service is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. It's upside down from the, uh, the way that the world worked in Jesus' day. Maybe we should say Jesus' way is right side up and the world is upside down. In those days, honor and greatness and leadership was often tied together with, with wealth. That's what Jesus means in verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Being a benefactor was someone who gave money to public causes, gave money to take care of public concerns as a way to buy influence. And as a way to buy public affirmation, they would give money and get honor and self-advancement in society in return. That's the way the world worked then. The more money I have and the more problems I can solve with my money, then the greater I am in society. Doesn't sound all that different from today, does it? Doesn't sound all that different from certain political candidates today, does it? I have all this money. I've been so successful, and therefore you have to listen to me. I've done all these things, and therefore my money buys me influence. My money buys me authority. And it's parlayed into some perception of greatness in our world. It's not all that different today than it was in Jesus' day. But Jesus says in verse 26, But not so with you. In other words... Don't use those same categories as your measure for greatness, as your, as your expectation of honor. Rather, greatest become as the youngest, he says. The young were those who were on the bottom of the social scale in those days for honor and value and importance. And instead of the way that the world worked, where you're great if you have enough money and you can tell everybody what to do, Jesus said greatness is when you come along and do what others won't do. That's greatness. In the kingdom, serving, giving up your position in order to advance someone else's interests. That is greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, step out of your position in society and serve someone else. And then it looks like greatness in my kingdom. How does it look in our lives? Well, it it might look like 
listening to others when we want to be talking. Giving them the floor, giving them the time, giving them the agenda. It might look like seeking out the stranger and inviting them in. Pursuing their interests instead of our own interests of comfort and ease. Even spending time with our own friends. I think this is going to become a challenge for us as we continue to grow as a church. How do we look for the stranger who's here and welcome them in? Even as we open up our new discipleship wing and we have new Sunday school classes, some of us are going to be called to lay aside our own preference, our own desire, our own comfort in order to make room for others and welcome the stranger into our lives. We serve and we sacrifice for others in the kingdom of God. It may look like doing the job that no one else wants to do. It looks like serving instead of being served. Jesus said, not so with you, because it's not that way with me. But he says in verse 27, I am the one among you who serve. With these apostles, Jesus had taught them, he'd healed them, he'd critiqued them, he'd been patient with them. And John tells us that he had just washed their feet. He took the position of a slave before them. And Jesus said, not so with you, because not so with me. Look at how I exercise my authority as your servant. Think about the Jesus who's saying these things. He, he is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He's the one who the Apostle Paul says holds all things together by the word of his power. He's the only perfect person ever to live. And yet here he was crouched at the table serving instead of being served. His greatness did not insulate him from serving those who were beneath him. He was the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. He's the one who holds authority and power over life and death. And yet in mere hours... He was going to go to a death on the cross in the ultimate service and ultimate sacrifice of those he loves. Should we expect for something better as his followers? Should we expect that our lives are supposed to be comfortable instead of self-sacrificial? No. We're following after him then. It's not to lead in hopes of accruing some social status. Not try to gather honor for our own names, not to be thought well of, but instead the form of leading and loving in Jesus' community is that of taking the place of a servant. Seeking out a place where you may disadvantage yourself in in order to pursue the advantage of others. Where might that be happening in your life? Where might you be looking to disadvantage yourself? in order to give an advantage, to give service, to give interest to someone else. Life in the kingdom of God is a race to the bottom. It's not a race to the top. I wonder where Jesus is calling you to live that way, in that definition of greatness today. Where might you trade in your sash of merit for a towel to serve? The second badge that Jesus calls us to wear as his disciples, as the definition of from greatness, is resting in his strength and not in our own. Now, remember the setting again. These apostles are arguing about who the best is. They're trumpeting their resumes. And Jesus firmly and yet graciously opens their eyes just a bit to see exactly what they're up against. Look at verse 31. 
He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus used Peter's given name, Simon, his Aramaic name. And you have to pay attention when someone in authority who usually uses your nickname uses your given name, you know. You know you're in trouble with your parents when they don't call you by your nickname but use your whole full name. That's what Jesus is doing here with, with Peter. Peter, you have no idea what's happening. He said, Satan has demanded to have you. And it's plural. Satan has demanded to have y'all. That he might sift y'all like wheat. That's what he's saying. This isn't simply about Peter. This is about the rest of them. This is about us as well. To sift is what farmers did at harvest. They would toss their harvest up into the air so that the extra, so that the, the wheat, the good crop would fall to the ground and the chaff, the extra stuff would be blown away in the wind. Jesus said that Satan demanded to have you so that he could try to take you down, that he could make your life blow away with the wind. Here you are, guys, talking about who the greatest one is and you have no idea how much danger you're in. They were in, they were awash in confidence in themselves. But Jesus said, your confidence is woefully misplaced. How could they withstand an attack? How could they withstand an assault from the devil upon their lives? Verse 32. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, if I were there, Perhaps even here this morning, if telling you Satan is trying to take your life down, you might think, well, I sure do wish Jesus would have prayed something different. Pray that my faith doesn't fail. How about Jesus praying that Satan be driven away? How about that he be cast off? How about that he be made powerless? How about you would take away any authority in his life over me? But Jesus prays that their faith not fail. Why? Well, because that's Satan ploy. That's what he desires to do then and now. He wants to destroy your faith. The devil's aim, the devil's desire is to grow in you and inspire in you faithlessness. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make your life so hard that you despair and you throw in the towel. He wants to make your life into so much of an uproar that you might have your faith blown away by the windy storm of his accusations and his attack. Satan, the accuser, wants to break your faith. He wants to destroy your trust in the promises and the character of God. That's what he wants to do then and now. But Jesus prayed that their faith not fail. Because he knows how vital faith is to our lives. You see, it is through faith that we are saved. It is through faith and trust in Jesus' work on his, his life and His work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. It is through faith and trust in that that we are justified, the Bible says in Romans 3. Justified is a, a Bible word that means we're counted not guilty. We are received and approved before the throne room, the judgment of God, because Jesus was condemned in our place. And it is by faith that we receive that. It is faith that Jesus says in verse 37, saves us as we believe this, that he was numbered with the transgressors. That is, the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he became sin for us 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is faith that lays hold of that truth that brings us into right relationship with the Lord. That all of our guilt and our shame and our sin has been nailed to the cross and we are now free. It is through faith that that life comes into us. We are called to live by faith from Galatians chapter 3. Trusting and walking in every day with recognition of Jesus' life within us, giving us strength and power. It is by faith that we abide, that we rest in, that we gain strength from Jesus. It is by faith that we uphold, lay hold of His power, as we studied in Ephesians 1 just a few weeks ago. It is by a growing faith in His love and passion for us that love for our sin is driven out of our hearts. Jesus prays that our faith not fail because he knows that is what is most necessary for our lives. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that he still prays for you now. Jesus is praying for you right now that your faith may not fail. In our lives, we may have sin that just seems like it won't let go. And we wonder, can... God forgive someone like me who keeps doing this again and again and again. But Jesus prays that your faith not fail so that you remember His blood that wipes you clean, that washes you whiter than snow. Jesus prays for us that our faith not fail when the pain of an illness in our lives makes us doubt God's goodness makes us want to give up, makes us want to throw in the towel, just chuck it all. I'm done with this God who can't be better to me than this. It is Jesus who prays that your faith in God's goodness and grace to you will not fail in those moments. When you experience a broken relationship, a broken marriage, it is Jesus that prays that you won't stop trusting in His love and His passion and His pursuit of you when it feels like the one who knows you best has turned away from you. It is Jesus who prays that our faith not fail when we have lack in our lives so that we won't stop believing in the good God who provides. You know, we don't survive an assault upon our lives by rehearsing again and again how great we are. By pointing out our spiritual merit badges. We're not going to survive Satan's accusations when he points out things to me and to you that more often than not, are true. We're not going to survive his assault by turning to our greatness, but rather remembering that Jesus prays that our faith not fail. But also, Jesus gives us another tool in this text in verse 32. He prays, speaks of Peter, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail him. Jesus knew that Peter would turn aside from him. Before the end of the night, Peter would walk away. But he also, verse 32, knew that Peter would turn again. He would repent. He would turn back to the Lord whom he had betrayed. And when he did repent, when he did turn, Jesus says, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers who are tempted to wander away just like you are. Strengthen your brothers with repentance in the story of my restoration and forgiveness in your life. I've said it myself many times how encouraged I am and how strengthened I am to know that all of Peter's failures and foibles are recorded in the Bible. 
When you look at Peter's life, you see all the boneheaded and the foolish things that he did, the sinful and brash things that he trusted in, and yet the grace of Jesus restored him and forgave him again and again and again. It is through Peter's life that we see a patient grace of a pursuing Jesus who won't let us go. It is through Peter's life that we find a relentless and a forgiving and a loving and cleansing grace when we continue to fail him. When we walk away, he restores. And here's that upside down honor thing again. It wasn't Peter's brash strength that Jesus said would strengthen his brothers. It's not Peter's might that would strengthen his brothers. But what? His repentance. After he turned again, he was called to strengthen his brothers. It's the stories of God's grace to us over and over and over again that are the strength and tools in his hand to encourage brothers and sisters. You know, nobody here is going to be encouraged by your so-called perfectly put-together life. No one. No one here is going to be strengthened by you or I recounting just how great and successful we are. No one here is going to be built up by you trumpeting how great and greatly to be praised you are. No one. No one is going to be built up with the stories of your endless triumph in life. But we all will be encouraged if you remind us of a God who is great. And a God who was gracious to you, who is strong and who's kind enough to sinners like you and me, who sticks with us in the middle, in the depth of our pain, in the middle of our distress. I'm going to be strengthened to keep going in my life when you tell me the story of how God never failed you, although you walked away from him again and again and again. We are strengthened by remembering the cleansing blood of Christ when you are convicted over your sin. We are strengthened and encouraged to withstand the accusations of the devil when we remind one another of the gospel of God's grace, that he's the one who sticks with us through thick and thin. Will you let that, his strength and his grace, be counted as your badge of greatness rather than your accomplishments? How about trumpeting what Jesus has done for you? The third and final badge that we see in Jesus' work to define greatness for us is his restoring grace. Listen to the mercy that Jesus had toward men who were arguing about who was the greatest. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, even that you would stand in judgment with me over all of my people. Here they were, sitting at Jesus' table, the communion table, for crying out loud, arguing which one of them was the best. And yet Jesus treats them as he does us so often. He treated them so much better than they deserved. They were arguing about who was the greatest, and Jesus extended to them royal authority. When all they were doing is demonstrating how miserably they fail to embody his royal authority. He restores. He invites. He welcomes us in. He treats us so much better than we deserve. You know, as with these apostles, we have to remember that it is 
not those who are qualified that Jesus calls to serve. He doesn't go out and search for the best. He doesn't go out and search for the brightest and recruit us in to be on his team, to be in his kingdom. It's completely the opposite way around. He goes and searches for and saves the wounded, the sick, the sinners, those who aren't qualified. And yet he calls us and by his grace, he then equips us to serve. Jesus qualifies and equips those who are called. People like me. And like you, who are sinful and filled with shame, and yet he gives us the privilege of working in his kingdom for his glory. He calls us without respect to our greatness. Whatever gifts or success you have in the Christian life, whatever gifts or success we have at Rivermont here in ministry, whatever success you have in your own family, don't believe for a minute that it comes and is guaranteed because you are so dedicated and so mighty and so powerful. Don't believe it for a minute. But rather it is His restoring grace that treats us so much better than we deserve. That's where power comes from. If you come into my study, you'll see in the corner a pair of canes. They're just crooked walking sticks that someone had given to me after I told them a quote from Charles Spurgeon once. Spurgeon said, God strikes straight lines with crooked sticks. You and I here today are crooked sticks. We have lives that are broken and flawed and filled with shame. And yet God in His mercy does great things in us and great things through us for His name's sake all around the world. He uses us in far greater measure than we could ever ask or imagine or even be tempted to deserve. So friends, let's drop the pretense. Let's drop the desire to seek a claim and seek a name for ourselves. And instead, let us count Jesus' name as our greatness. Let us follow after Him into self-sacrifice and service. Let us lay hold of His strength at work within us and His restoring grace that treats us so much better than we could ever deserve. Take your place as a crooked stick in the Redeemer's hands. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your power and your might, you would indeed do just that in our hearts. That we would know that although we are flawed and sinful and broken, you use us. You treat us so much better than we deserve. You've given us a place in your kingdom when every single day our lives betray that we don't know how to use your royal authority. And so, Father, we pray that you would lead us and teach us and change us and transform us. May you give us the strength and the courage to tell our stories of your redeeming grace to others here in the church body and in our communities. May we be known as a place where sin-sick people come and find a healing Christ. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.